Brad is the general chairman of the convention, has been introduced before today, was just introduced, and besides you all know him for his tireless efforts to effectuate the uh, still imperfectly realized ideal of the Elder Harlan for a colorblind constitution. But Brad, I'll just say that I'm conscious every day of the uh, high honor that uh, I have in working beside you, Brad Reynolds. Thank you all very much. It is um, my pleasure to stand up here in order to uh, introduce the speaker tonight. Uh, Attorney General Meese has had a long relationship with the president and was in favor of limited government long before it was fashionable. He, along with the president, bucked the trend of liberalism at its height in the 1960s in the most liberal state of the Union, California. Attorney General Meese has a vast wealth of experience in the law. His long period of experience as a prosecutor in Alameda County gives him a highly valuable practical perspective on legal issues and the ramifications of legal decisions. Because of his tenure as a professor of law at the University of San Diego Law School, he has also had the opportunity for detached reflection on, on legal issues. Attorney General Meese has sparked an intellectual debate on the law and modes of legal decision-making unlike any attorney general in the modern era. His remarks have raised the public level of consciousness on the law and the role of the courts. He has brought these issues for the first time into a highly prominent position in the political debate. In the past, for example, the 1980 and 84 elections the Democrats tried to appeal to fear of Reagan's Supreme Court appointments to win votes, but this went to the likely substance of the opinions that would result in the effect on certain interest groups and did not address the modes of constitutional decision-making, judicial review, and the originalist, non-originalist debate. Attorney General Meese has not stimulated this debate merely because it is the bicentennial year on the Constitution, but has sought to promote an understanding of the Constitution, for it is the document from which the legitimacy of our government derives. An understanding of how it is to be construed is essential to an effective defense of our system of government. It has been my extreme honor to work closely with this man over the last several years, to learn from him and be part of his exciting tenure at the Department of Justice. He is a real leader amongst us, amongst all of us. He is a giant influence on the important issues of our time. He is a man of considerable substance, of warmth and sensitivity, of impeccable integrity, and in times of controversy and trouble, of which I know something, <laughs> of unflinching support. Ladies and gentlemen, I give to you the Attorney General of the United States, Edwin Meese.
you very much. Thank you very much, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you. Thank you very much. They've only rented the room till midnight. Thank you. <laughs> well, thank you very much for Brad for those very kind words and thank you to all of you for that uh, very warm welcome. I was a little worried as the evening wore on. Uh, first, the president took the top half of my speech in his remarks and Brad uh, took several of the other comments, but uh, since I have this obligation that's been imposed by Ken, uh, and in order to get all of the people who work for me here back to work on Monday, I think I better <laughs> go ahead with my talk. Seriously, I, I do congratulate the Federalist Society on the tremendous accomplishments that have been made. Uh, I think I can say that uh, objectively as an outsider who was not in on the founding of the Federalist Society, uh, but the conferences you've held, the chapter work that I heard about today at lunch, uh, and this conference itself this evening, and tomorrow, this afternoon, uh, certainly uh, is a great credit to all of you who have participated in this activity. I'm very proud that the founders and leaders of this organization, many of them are in fact serving with me in the Department of Justice. As a matter of fact, uh, President Reagan said in his remarks that a number of the Federalist Society members worked in the Justice Department. I'm only glad that the President doesn't know how many. <laughs> it was a little, uh, little thin over there this afternoon, I must say, in the, in the Justice Building. <laughs> but I was glad to know you were all involved in intellectual endeavor. Particularly the, uh, the co-chairmen who have already uh, spoken to you, uh, Steve Calabrese and Dave McIntosh, uh, who are the greatest team to appear before a microphone since Hardin and Weaver. <laughs> and Ken Cribb, your master of ceremonies tonight. Uh, Ken, as some of you know, comes from South Carolina. Uh, during the last uh, two years, the first two years that I was uh, Attorney General, we were fortunate to have as the chairman of the Senate Judiciary Committee, Senator Thurman, who comes from the same state, and who brought with him a good portion of South Carolina onto his staff. And uh, I was very fortunate to have Ken with me because when I went to meetings up on the hill, I'd take him along not only as my assistant, but also as my interpreter. <laughs> it's a particular honor, of course, to be introduced by Brad Reynolds uh, and for you uh, to have him as the general chairman of this conference. Uh, I know all of the accolades uh, that have already been said about Brad, but I can't help but add that in my opinion, there's no finer lawyer or dedicated patriot in the entire country. It was interesting today uh, at the opening ceremonies, uh, when the flag ceremony took place, uh, Ken was gonna tell you, but he forgot that when the vice president arrived, he saw those uniforms, he thought they really were Federalists. <laughs> but, but I was struck by the anomaly of it all, people in Continental Army uniforms parading in front of the glare of television lights. Uh, it was kind of a time warp over two centuries. Uh, but seeing all the press around, 
and seeing those continental uniforms made me think a little bit about the changes in communication that have occurred since the original founding of our country. As a matter of fact, observing uh, the news media there today, I thought about the way in which the news media today covers all of us, particularly presidential actions, and it sort of got me wondering, how would George Washington himself have fared if he had been subjected to the Klieg lights, the television cameras, and highly publicized congressional hearings of the sort that we encounter all the time today? So I thought a little bit about this, and I wondered, for example, how would today's media have covered such an event as George Washington's crossing of the Delaware and his defeat of the Hessian troops in the early stages of the Revolutionary War? And I suspect it might have gone something like this. The 1770s forerunner of the New York Times would have had headlines and extensive articles reporting that Washington was being severely criticized throughout the country for the not consulting with the Continental Congress before he began that expedition. <laughs> and the Trenton, New Jersey Herald would certainly have a major article in which they would state that the governor was outraged that part of his state was being used as a staging area without notifying him. <laughs> and I suspect that the Philadelphia newspaper would be quoting the president of the Colonial Council of Churches, castigating General Washington for launching his attack during the Christmas season. <laughs> and finally, I, I'm sure you know what's coming, the colonial forerunner of the Boston Globe would feature a full-length interview with, ben with Benedict Arnold, <laughs> which, would, <laughs> which would be entitled Leadership Deficiencies in the Revolutionary Army. <laughs> Well, turning to the topic that's brought you together, on the 9th of July, 1985, uh, almost three years ago, I gave a speech before the American Bar Association in which I called for a return to the jurisprudence of original intention, a way of thinking, litigating, and judging that takes seriously our written constitution. Since then, many others have spoken out, as you heard tonight, on the issue of constitutional interpretation, including Supreme Court justices, state and federal judges, members of Congress and the executive branch, professors and scholars, editorial writers, columnists, and a number of commentators from a variety of, of vantage points. As a matter of fact, even cartoonists, in their unique and vivid way, have entered into the debate. And I, too, have, from time to time, had the occasion to return to this issue. Uh, indeed, uh, two of the more memorable events uh, involved the Federalist Society. On the 15th of November of 1985, uh, before the District of Columbia chapter of the Society, I elaborated on what it means to be faithful to our written constitution. And then almost a year later, on the 21st of October at Tulane University, I addressed a related issue, the distinction between our constitution and the constitutional case law emanating from the Supreme Court. I might mention that prior to that Tulane visit, I had the pleasure of attending a reception with the members of the Federalist Society at that institution. I'm also grateful to the Society for printing up a series of speeches, including some of mine and other people, on this subject of constitutional interpretation. A copy of that document, I understand, has been uh, provided to each of you in your packet, and uh, hopefully uh, it uh, will get some reading uh, to prepare you for carrying on this debate in your own circles. 
But I think it's fitting that at this convention, sponsored by the Federalist Society, we once again address the issues that involve our, the Constitution as our fundamental law. As is appropriate, also, as the President said tonight, that we discuss the Constitution in this first month of the year in which the Bicentennial will be celebrated. The topic that you have chosen for your conference here, changing the law, the role of lawyers, judges, and legislators, is a very appropriate one. During your various sessions, you're discussing interesting and significant issues. Statutory construction, stare decisis, the amendment process, constitutional doctrine, and that very important constitutional topic, insider trading and mergers. <laughs> uh, as a matter of fact, noting uh, the fact that you have launched into economic topics, uh, perhaps I should have worn my usual Adam Smith tie uh, this evening, but uh, free enterprise being what it is, and the Federalist uh, Society entrepreneurs being what they are, it's now possible for conservative lawyers to have a variety of ties to wear <laughs> at occasions such as this. Well, tonight I hope to make some small contribution to your discussions by addressing more precisely what a jurisprudence of original intention is and what it is not, and by discussing its practical relevance not only to the work of the triumvirate that you're talking about in your conference, lawyers, judges, and legislators, but also, if I may, to the American public generally. To begin, I would like to indicate what is truly at stake in the current debate over constitutional interpretation and that it really is not just an esoteric exercise, but has real implications uh, for the future of our constitutional republic as we enter into the third century. For most of our history of the constitutional adjudication or decision-making done by judges was a matter basically of construing the text. Like Thomas Jefferson or Spencer Roan, uh, they preferred a, a strict construction of the text. Others, like John Marshall and Alexander Hamilton, were given to a looser construction. But whether the approach was strict or loose, they did have one thing in common. It was still constructionist or interpretivist. That is, it was assumed that there was a constitution that possessed a discernible meaning and that it was intended and understood by those who had framed, proposed, and ratified the various parts. Recent decades, of course, as you have discussed in some of your sessions, have witnessed the rise of a radically different approach. Accordingly, a constitutional adjudication for some today is not a matter of construction at all, uh, neither loose nor strict. Some appear to view the Constitution, in fact, as virtually a document without legally discernible or significant meaning, but rather they see it as a text whose meaning must be created on each case and in each decision by judges supposedly sensitive not to an original text but rather to changing social conditions and it seems intoxicated by only the most recent moral or political philosophies. Such constitutional analysis, I would contend, depends upon statements like these and I'm going to quote some uh, out of some of the opinions. Uh, they refer to such things as the well-being of our society or deeply embedded cultural values or moral evolution, evolving concepts of human dignity, the living development of constitutional justice, welfare rights or the national will, the right of equal citizenship 
or the subtle weight of responsible opinion. Now, I think the one thing that all of those bases for constitutional interpretation, such as they are, have in common is that your idea of what they mean is probably as good as mine or anybody else in the room. But they certainly do not have an agreed upon discernible legal meaning, which provides an enduring foundation for the institutions and the processes of government, and which are sufficient to provide the important parameters of governmental activity, which are necessary in order to preserve the liberty which was so important to the people who wrote the Constitution 200 years ago. Instead, these extra constitutional values are given as the basis for determining constitutional meaning. For obvious reasons, uh, I guess the term non-interpretivism is the name that can be given to this approach. I would suggest perhaps it ought to be called inventionism because it stands in such sharp contrast to traditional methods of legal construction generally. For the most part, the customary or the contemporary universe of constitutional adjudication is made up of those who advocate either non-interpretivism or interpretivism, which is at the very least a mouthful to say in one sentence. <clears throat> but as many of you know from your own experience, and it's been alluded to in the very eloquent comments uh, that Ken, departing from his duties today, spent all day writing. <laughs> Non-interpretivists predominate in a good many of our law schools today. As a matter of fact, uh, echoing uh, what the president said and what Ken said, uh, Judge Bork was uh, known to comment shortly after his elevation to the bench that uh, among most law faculty members, uh, Ronald Reagan was highly regarded as one of the great reformers of legal education because by appointing them to the bench, he had removed most of the interpretivists <laughs> who were teaching originally in our law schools. Well, here at a lawyer's convention, I would like to suggest what may be a, an heretical thought, and that is that the Constitution uh, must be understood as something more than just a lawyer's document. Interpretivism and non-interpretivism are words that lawyers use and understand. They show where the lines of the debate lie on the issues of how judges should decide cases that involve constitutional questions. But what is ultimately at stake in this debate, a debate that is not limited to lawyers and judges, is far more than constitutional adjudication, although that, of course, is very important. What is at stake most fundamentally is the nature of the Constitution itself and, in turn, the nature of our political order that is derived from it. Interpretivism assumes that the Constitution is a document of fixed and legally binding meaning. Non-interpretivism assumes that the Constitution is a document that merely provides a starting point for philosophical adventurism. The choice between these views has a tremendous impact on the nature of our political process. <coughs> Certainly the political history and tradition of our country points to the understanding of the Constitution as a document of fixed meaning, supplied and made definite by those who framed and those who ratified it. Apart from the Charter's own terms, there is no better source for the traditional understanding of the Constitution than James Madison himself, the man whose replica appears on your Federalist ties, but most particularly who was thought of as the father of the Constitution. 
and who wrote that if the sense in which the Constitution was accepted and ratified by the nation be not the guide to, to expounding it, there can be no security for a stable government more than for a, a faithful exercise of its power. Well, years later, what Madison had to say was echoed by President Van Buren in his inaugural address when he said, the principle that will govern me in the high duty to which my country calls me is a strict adherence to the letter and spirit of the Constitution as it was designed by those who framed it. Well, that sense of a Constitution that has meaning and that has enduring values for our political institutions has been repeated <clears throat> no less close to our conference tonight than by Ronald Reagan when he gave his talk at the installation of Chief Justice Rehnquist and Justice Scalia. And so in a decade, or in a period of decades really, because it has occurred over a period of time, Ken referred to some of those times, the Constitution has been, come to be viewed by some judges and some scholars as a document of ever-changing meaning defined for the moment by contemporary concepts. As a matter of fact, one political science textbook, not written by a lawyer, but published in 1974, advises that the Constitution, quote, boils down to how you feel about politics in your heart, unquote. <laughs> one of the leading constitutional law books makes a similar point in legal-like language by saying that the Constitution is an intentionally incomplete, often indeterminate structure for the participatory evolution of political ideals and governmental practices. Now, I don't want to lead you astray. Obviously, the Constitution does not resolve every or even most of the political issues of the day, of our own day, any more than any other. But it wasn't intended to. It was intended, however, and this is very important, and indeed it does establish explicit rules as to how the great issues of every age in our democracy are to be decided. This confidence in structure was at the heart of Madison's and his fellow founders' theory of limited popular government. This is not to suggest that the founding fathers envisioned a static society. Certainly they did not. Indeed, they would have been right at home at a conference such as this dedicated to changing the law which, by the way, as you think of it, was precisely why the Philadelphia Convention was held in 1787. But those same founders provided within the Constitution the ground rules for both its adaptation and its change, as well as the change and adaptation of our basic governmental principles and institutions. Well, tonight I'd like to contribute to the debate over constitutional interpretation by addressing two questions. First, I would like to consider the purpose of a written constitution and what the nature of that purpose suggests for the task of constitutional interpretation. And second, I would like to consider how our constitutional scheme is enforced, not only by the courts, but also by the so-called political branches. The answer to these two questions will help us, I believe, to understand better our system of constitutional democratic government and will provide the basis for an analysis of the issues that you are exploring in more detail in other sessions of this conference. In the process, I think we can better understand why courts that are engaged in judicial review 
must be careful to guide their work by the text and the original meeting of various specific constitutional provisions. Clearly, one major purpose of a written constitution is to constitute, if you will, or give structure to a system of government by establishing, describing, and fixing its institutions and its component parts. The American Constitution accomplished this purpose with great economy of wording in that original document of 1787. Uh, also included in your packets, I hope you noticed, was a copy of that Constitution uh, through the uh, courtesy of the Bicentennial Commission. And if you haven't read the Constitution recently, and of those who went to law schools where you didn't read the Constitution at all, <laughs> I would suggest you read it. Because I think it's interesting to note how in a relatively few words, an entire structure of government was developed in that very great document. Obviously, as we know, it set up three branches of the federal government and granted each a particular sphere of political authority. A second purpose of a written constitution beyond that of organizing the institutions of government is the limitation and the enumeration of governmental powers. The fundamental charters of democratic government, both prior to and following our Constitution, including such famous documents as the Magna Carta, the Mayflower Compact, were written on the assumption that it's desirable to describe clearly those things which government can do and those which it cannot do. As President Reagan pointed out just three nights ago in his State of the Union address, the American Constitution takes this process one step further conceptually by building into that document the assumption that the federal government can exercise only those powers which are enumerated while all other powers are reserved to the states or to the people. As long as I've known him, President Reagan takes the Tenth Amendment seriously. Constitutions prior to 1787, in some sense in contrast, have generally assumed that governments could have all power, were omnipotent, and were limited only by those things that were expressly forbidden by a constitution or something akin to a Bill of Rights. Well, a third purpose of a written constitution is to confer democratic legitimacy by formally expressing the consent of the people to the government's exercise of authority. Thus, in a democracy or a republic, as opposed to a constitutional monarchy or an oligarchy, the Constitution in effect becomes a social contract by which the people agree to be bound by laws which are made pursuant to and in accord with the Constitution's mandate. In such a system, the Constitution may become, as it is in the United States, the principal bulwark for a government's legitimacy. Well, the fourth purpose of a written Constitution is to prevent passing fads and passions in the body politic from overriding fundamental values, fundamental rights, and major and important enduring principles. The Bill of Rights in our Constitution and in others typically perform this function of preserving basic civil rights which might otherwise give way before the passions of the moment. In this fashion, a constitutional provision that is enduring in the form of a Declaration of Rights can help preserve a balance between the need for order and the desire for freedom by bolstering such fundamental rights.
our Constitution's unparalleled historical success, and I hardly need to remind this audience that it is the longest enduring Constitution in the history of the world, is in the part the result of at least two innovations in the theory of constitutional design, which were perfected during the 18th century by our founding fathers, and which allow our Constitution to accomplish better the four aims that I mentioned. <coughs> the first of these innovations was the fact of the writing itself. Prior to the American experience, written constitutions were a rarity. Indeed, the, the great model of constitutionalism up to that time had been Great Britain, whose unwritten constitution was seen by many throughout the world as a shining example of how to impose limits on government, primarily through reliance on custom and tradition. Well, we all know the revolutionary situation <coughs> and the experience of those early colonists and their lack of total enthusiasm by, that was caused with, by English traditions generally, but particularly the lack of reliability of uncodified English guarantees of rights. And therefore, our founding fathers chose to rely upon a written document with a very definite process for amendment and change. The framers thought that only a written constitution with a fixed meaning could be relied on to limit the arbitrary exercise of governmental power. And being good Lockeans, the framers liked the idea of having a written social contract as their charter of government. Well, such a contract could embody the popular democratic consent, which the framers believed was essential in order to legitimize a system of government. The framers also employed a, a second innovation in their constitutional design, which has also proven crucial to the relative success of our constitutional system. And that innovation was the deliberate decision to divide power, not just to establish power, but to divide it through checks and balances, so that, as they said, ambition could be made to counteract ambition. Our constitution divides authority through the separation of powers between the branches, also through bicameralism, as well as through federalism. And when properly functioning, this pluralistic division of power should preserve freedom by preventing any one institution from accumulating so much authority that it can unilaterally threaten fundamental rights. Accordingly, the framers' decision to divide power, as it was in their decision to adopt a written constitution. These two concepts further the goals of constitutional liberty by effectively delimiting authority and by making it harder for passions of the moment to prevail over the preservation of fundamental rights. Now this brings me to the second question of the evening which I alluded to in my opening remarks. Once we understand what are the reasons to have a written constitution, what then is the constitutional scheme by which the, constitutional, the Constitution itself, this document, will be enforced. One popular misconception that is abroad is that the duty of enforcing the Constitution, indeed of applying it, is exclusively that of the courts. Under this view, the courts exist primarily to, to rule on constitutional issues and to act kind of as ongoing impartial umpires of our whole governmental system. Well, in my opinion, uh, this view, while technically correct in part, 
nevertheless overlooks the importance of the self-executing structural features that were embodied in our Constitution by the framers. Each of the three branches of the federal government and all of the states helped to play an equally important part with the court and have, although often unrecognized, a definite role in the enforcement of constitutional provisions. I mention the states because the concept of federalism was as fundamental to the framers as was the doctrine of separation of powers. But confining ourselves for this evening to the federal sphere, let us look at the way each of the branches carries out its duty to interpret, apply, and enforce constitutional values in the exercise of its prescribed responsibilities. I guess it's perhaps unnecessary to, to describe for lawyers how the judiciary, of course, plays a critically important and valuable role in enforcing constitutional rights. Often a judge resolving a case or controversy may well find an obligation under the oath of office to strike down an executive or a legislative action. We've seen a few of those even in recent months. When this is done properly, federal judges are part of the process of breathing life into constitutional guarantees of limited government. They vindicate that balance between order and freedom that was struck when the populace granted its consent to a constitutional form of government. How then do we know when a judge in carrying out this function, in declaring an executive or legislative act unconstitutional, is acting properly? Well, the answer is by looking at the relevant Britain constitutional provision and checking to be sure that it is being enforced not by whim or caprice or by the series of objectives or underlying purposes that I described earlier, but rather to its according to the plain words of the constitutional provision as originally meant. If it is, then the judge is properly treating the Constitution as the supreme law of the land and is enforcing the will of the enduring and fundamental democratic majority that ratified the constitutional provision at issue. In addition, the judge is helping to preserve limited government by giving practical content and meaning to otherwise nebulous constitutional guarantees. Thus, in those instances where judges are guided by text and original meaning, the institution of judicial review promotes the purpose of constitutionalism and validates that consent of the governed. The problem comes, of course, when the courts do not feel bound by the text or original meaning of a constitutional provision, as I discussed earlier. In doing that, then the judges will sometimes justify what they have done by some concept, such as I described, of extra constitutional tra tradition, where doctrine and meaning have no fixed written source and hence can be easily overcome by what we might call judicial fiat. Well, Obviously, the framers would have no purpose in setting down a written constitution and getting it, if you will, in writing if the courts were not obliged to interpret those written provisions in the same manner and with the same fidelity as they would be obliged to interpret any other legal document, document whether a contract, a will, or anything else. Our written constitution cannot bind or limit discretion or governmental power if it is not inter interpreted on the basis of an enduring standard. We see, therefore, that non-interpretivism is not only contrary to common sense, 
It's antithetical to the very notion and purposes of constitutionalism. It's interesting to note that many times there is a concept particularly written about in the press and many by many commentators, and that is that non-interpretivism is viewed exclusively as a means of adding new rights to the Constitution. But those who look at it that way forget too easily that activist judges who are prone to add new rights that do not appear in the written document are equally capable of taking rights away. And just such a thing has happened in recent years where courts have sometimes downplayed or overlooked entirely the principle of enumerated powers and other important provisions of the Constitution such as the Takings Clause and the Contracts Clause, which themselves guarantee certain fundamental economic rights. Well, our courts obviously should and will continue to play a very important part in enforcing and preserving constitutional guarantees. But as I mentioned earlier, the judiciary is not the only branch that has this responsibility to promote the purposes of constitutionalism. Many constitutional questions arise that are strictly outside the arena of legal issues or of cases and controversies. The proper conduct of impeachments, for example, a matter that has been taken uh, hold of by the Congress within the last 15 years. The workings of the amendment process and various decisions with respect to war and foreign policy are all examples that come to mind. Very few of these topics ever wind up in the courts. And therefore, branches other than the judiciary have an equal obligation with the courts to enforce the Constitution in these areas that fall within their province and in which they can act. This is why the members of all three branches of the government have an equal responsibility to uphold and support the Constitution as they apply it to their particular areas of responsibility. While the courts have generally been quite attentive to their responsibilities under the Constitution, perhaps the other two so-called majoritarian branches of government have sometimes been less cognizant of their responsibilities because they do not view their responsibilities as legal in nature often in terms of decisions of courts and so on. Uh, there's a sense to be, there's a, a, a temptation to be less sensitive to constitutional issues. The executive branch, for example, must be vigilant to assess constitutional issues carefully in making decisions to sign or veto legislation. In drafting the signing statements that presidents use to accompany their signatures on bills or their veto messages if the opposite is true. Or as in our department, in employing prosecutorial discretion or in issuing pardons or in deciding whether the executive branch can in good faith defend various governmental actions in court. Likewise, Congress, for its part, needs to be more attentive to constitutional issues as it considers legislation as well as, as it conducts investigations and hearings. In particular, Congress has a need to give greater respect to executive prerogatives with respect to the conduct of foreign policy the appointment of public officials, and those other areas of governmental activity that have been specifically assigned to the president and his subordinates. As a matter of fact, the vice president in his remarks today talked about at least one area, the conduct of foreign policy. 
where under a constitutional framework it is vital if our nation is to maintain its leadership in the world that there be greater agreement on the constitutional bounds between the executive and legislative functions. If all three branches will pull together to protect our Constitution as a charter for limited government, then we would need to rely on the courts far less often as a protection of last resort. It's the job of the majoritarian branches, the presidency, the executive branch, the legislative branch, the Congress, to make sure whenever possible that constitutional problems are addressed before they wind up in litigation and end up in court. Such attention will help to better fulfill the Constitution's purpose of setting limits on government authority, of checking the majoritarian passions of the moment, and of lending democratic consent and legitimacy to the government's constant efforts to balance the claims of order and freedom. In closing, let me suggest that vigorous debate over constitutional interpretation, particularly in this bicentennial year, serves to renew discussion of our founding charter with the same enthusiasm, the same sense of purpose, and the same philosophical fervor that characterized that convention in Philadelphia 200 years ago. Let us hope that our current debate, encouraged and ennobled, if you will, by the enlightened thought and the careful scholarship of the Federalist Society, will lead to similar successful and enduring results. Thank you.